to Horror Films of Netflix, a podcast dedicated to reviewing and documenting every horror film on Netflix. At least that is our long-term goal. Our short-term goal is we're just a bunch of college film kids having fun. My name is Kyla. I'm in my third year of university studying art and film. I love horror films. Um, not much else that needs to be said. I'm Marty. Um, I'm a second year student in college. I also love horror films. I really want to make them. Um, however, you cannot pay me to touch goo. I, I know. That's probably the one thing that I can't do, which is probably detrimental to my career as a horror filmmaker. And they probably have gloves. They probably have gloves. Yeah, true. I'm assuming. Uh, I'm Hannah Boynes. I'm a second year theater major, and I've just added a film emphasis. And I, I watch a lot of movies, a lot, a lot of movies, and I read a lot of mo- movies. <laughs> <laughs> what are As books? Do all. <laughs> right? What the fuck's a book? Oh, sorry. Can I swear on this? Yes, we can swear. Okay, my um. Okay, I'd like to publish about... a retraction to that earlier statement. Bush fucked nine eleven. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, so like, my statement. I, I guess that's your introduction, then, Aaron. No. Uh, for the record, about swearing, my philosophy on that is that anybody who watches Hellraiser should probably be okay with swearing too. Well, they because, swear all the time in the movie. Yeah. yeah. Well, also, it's a pretty fucked up film. Yeah, um... So we welcome young and old. There are probably children who watch Hellraiser, and that's okay. I mean, if they can handle it, then that's good, I guess. Um, but, you watch know, Zootopia if you're gonna watch... to watch that out, though. Yeah. Watch yeah, it. after watching Hellraiser, if you're below the age of, I assume, 15, you're gonna wanna go watch something else to cleanse your palate. <laughs> like, teens I'm okay with. Like, if they watch Hellraiser, I'm like, okay, it's a, it's a teenage thing. Hormones. But, like, 10 and 12. Just give yourself mm-hmm. a balanced breakfast. Um, some of, you know, Go watch Scary this, Godmother um... after that, okay? That's like a somewhat spooky movie that would be appropriate for children. So you kind of already introduced yourself, but I'll let you give an official introduction. Hi, I'm Aaron. I make movies. Good. I'm not going to admit to being a film student. Who does that in polite society? <laughs> um, so, Aaron, please. Oh. Yes. <laughs> okay. Aaron, please walk us through the plot of Hellraiser because I think the rest of us had a really tough time trying to describe exactly what the plot of this movie is. <clears throat> well, I'm basically a Cenobite, so uh, in my neck of the woods, we don't call it Hellraiser, we call it Wednesday. Um, <laughs> The refresher course for those of you who have seen it, and a broad synopsis for those of you who haven't. Um, basically, it's the story of a uh, of a man who finds a, uh, a puzzle box derived heavily from Hebrew mythology, containing three or four demons from a pain dimension, who are incidentally not that heavily derived from Hebrew mythology, who um, basically torture him into a state of pain-driven excess. Then uh, his brother comes over, attempting to live in the house because he thinks his brother is either in jail in a foreign country or dead. And then whenever he accidentally gets his hand cut, the blood spills into the floorboards, and anyone with a passing knowledge of cosmic horror will indicate what happens next. Frank's body starts to realign itself um, slowly. Now it's at the same moment that we learn that... Uh, 
Frank's brother's wife has been having had an affair on their wedding night with Frank. Uh, so when Frank rematerializes into a collection of goo, he convinces her to help him regain his form by killing people and stealing their blood. It's a pretty straightforward horror premise bolstered by a lot of sexual subtext and the general outline of uh, Lovecraftian horror, as to be expected from Clive Barker. So, real quickly, let's just go around and give our initial thoughts. I had already seen Hellraiser previously, and I know that Hannah and Aaron had. Marty, this was your first time watching Hellraiser? Yes, this was my first time watching Hellraiser. Um, My general thoughts on it were... um, Ew, but also, hmm. <laughs> An appropriate reaction. It's going to go on the box. <laughs> Ew, hmm, <laughs> says Marty Gibson of the OCU, whatever the fuck. The Resident right. Film Department magazine, whatever the fuck. More films of Netflix. And chill. And kill. Netflix and kill! <laughs> da, 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 da. Right. Have you already bought the domain for this show? No, I don't have... Ne- Horror Films of Netflix isn't even really our official name. It's just the name of my blog. Okay, it's called Netflix on. and Kill now. Yeah, I approve hey. of that. Netflix and Kill. Da-da. Cool. Cool. Da dun dun. Right. So, Aaron, you hadn't seen this in a very long time. Was it as good as you remembered it? I believe I saw it first when I was either a freshman or sophomore in high school. Sort of formative years for me and my affinity with weird genre films before I had gotten way the fuck out into like. Thai children's movies and all the other weird shit I watched when I was in high school. Like, I was kind of like Frank in the sense that I just like went to look for experiences that no one else had seen, just to say that I had seen shit no one else had. But Hellraiser was in kind of a uh, a slightly more normal phase for me, and I remember it. uh, It was also around the same time I saw like Devil's Rejects and and Prince of Darkness and a lot of other like really good atmospheric horror. And I just remember like Hellraiser being one of the ones that like legitimately kept me up at night. Not because it's horrifying, but because it's so it's horrifying and contemplative. And I remember being struck by just this pervasive mood of like, I think it was actually my first affiliation with like cosmic horror in any real sense, because I just felt like every single scene had some sense of dread to it. And I had I'd seen horror movies before, obviously I had seen, uh, I think I first saw Friday the 13th when I was 13 on Valentine's Day, because the, the remake was coming out that weekend. But um, I just remember being struck by it now. Um, now, with the benefit of hindsight and with the benefit of a little bit more film knowledge, also a little bit more of, an, of a knowledge of the, the, the evils of the floating world or whatever, it doesn't quite horrify me as much. It's still a really compelling watch and like significantly more well put together than a lot of other than a lot of its other contemporaries. I'm not here to disparage 80s horror. I mean, that's actually pretty important to my development as a filmmaker. But the way that Barker, who who was not professionally trained as a director, obviously he was a novelist, is able to do what he does. You know, he's not going to win like the palm or anything, but he does good filmmaking techniques. And that was something that, you know, at a microcosmic level, I focused on that. And then, of course, you bring that up to the macro level, and it's just a really, really engaging horror movie with still, I think, some of the most unique designs of that period, probably in the last, uh, what's a cutoff? What's sort of a pivotal year for horror since, let's say, 1965 when the Hays Code ended? So it's like some of the best horror imagery for me since that year. And I don't think, in terms of like 
just overall uniqueness. Hellraiser can be topped by very many things. Definitely not in this past couple decades. So, um, Hannah, you were the one who actually showed me Hellraiser for the first time. We watched it about uh, six months ago, I would say. Spring of last semester. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyone who knows me knows that I am kind of a gore hound. I really like gory films. I want to do special effects one day and production design, and I like especially the older ones, the practical effects, the way they create. Um, Even if it doesn't look realistic, just the texture of it and the tangibility really amazes me. There's some really, really fucking good effects in Hellraiser also, and some really good gore. So that was a good recommendation from Hannah. So, Hannah, what were your thoughts? How many times have you seen... You said you've seen it multiple... I've seen it about three times now, okay. I'd say. Um, Does it hold up each time you watch it? Yeah. Yeah, i definitely say it would. Um, kind of what Aaron was saying a little bit. It's it's a very simple story when you get down to it. There's an mm. evil thing and you gotta stop it or you gotta prevent it. But I found it designs to be so unique. And like you said, the practical effects really make you feel the the threats that are in the room so often with CGI now. I just... I have a hard time being scared. You have to be really creative with the CGI in order to make me scared. Like, I'm sure the Babadook used CGI like crazy, but they made it feel like it was in the room. With practical effects, it's a little easier because you can see people reacting to things that are actually there, so you feel like they're actually there. And the threat is real. And I am a huge fan of the the final girl trope because there was a professor who uh, taught intro to film studies here, and he... Made it. He mentioned that horror movies are criticized for being very sexist, and because there's a lot of gore and usually associated with sex and horror, and like some usually it's a guy chasing around a girl with a knife. But the thing is, usually the female kills the person who is chasing her in the end. So the people in the audience, male or female, are forced to identify with the final girl, which is very interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Make of that what you will, but I. I always heavily identify with whoever is the hero. And I really like the hero of this movie. She's very competent. She is thrown into these circumstances that she doesn't understand. The only moment where the audience can kind of go, what the hell are you doing? Is when she's kind of messing with the box in the hospital. And even that's understandable because she doesn't really know what it is or what's going on. And when she does realize what's going on, she kind of makes a deal with the Cenobites. And she, she figures out that when her uncle like wears her father like a skin suit... Um, she figures out pretty quickly that you're not my dad. <laughs> you're not my dad. Only, only time I will accept that line of dialogue is you're not my dad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, for me, what keeps me watching in a horror movie is a very compelling hero and a very interesting villain. I'm not really in it just to watch people die gruesomely. Usually I'm, I'm in it for the journey. And Hellraiser, I think, is an amazing journey from start to finish because you're forced to first identify with Frank and then see his journey then you get to see the wife's journey is how she got wrapped up in this and then you get to see what's her name Casey Kirsty Kirsty you get to see Kirsty's journey and how the film ends and then you get to see it start all over again and also it's it's a bit safe horror for me because in that movie the bad get punished and the good get to live it's the only person who really doesn't get the happy ending is the father Mm-hmm. And really, we don't get that much time to get to know him, so it doesn't it don't really feel that loss. I'm mainly in it for the monsters and for Christy figuring out what's going on. So I don't. It doesn't keep me up at night because I, I get what I want. The hero lives, the villain dies, and the Cenobites—they're kind of neutral, honestly. They're just there to 
to do weird pain sex and leave. <laughs> and mm. if you summon them, that's, that's, that's your prerogative, I guess. And I guess yeah. the, the interesting thing, I think one of the things that makes Hellraiser so interesting from that uh, gender perspective that you mentioned is that, like, they've sort of, like, unlike other horror movies of this, of this vintage... All of that sexuality stuff isn't just subtext that might have happened accidentally because, you know, these were movies that were meant to be projected into grindhouse. Well, maybe not grindhouses by the 80s, but, like, meant to be projected in the kinds of theaters where people would, like, make out with their significant others while the movie happened to be playing. I mean, that's sort of the... It's sort of the last... These 80s, some of these 80s horror movies are kind of the last vestige of the drive-in culture as a unique movie-going experience where you'd see stuff there that you couldn't see elsewhere before home video came and democratized all of that and of course in home video you still have that same environment in fact you can have just straight up explicit sex in your house while, while one of these things is on so like but also once you're done watch the movie without the sex because it's pretty good then too <laughs> yeah. well yes but in hellraiser the sexuality isn't just subtext as a result of the environment in which these movies were made it's text it's something that there's very clearly an engagement with i mean the one of the brilliant stroke one of the strokes of genius in the movie is taking the the stuff that people were already talking about. And there are essays in film studies published around this time that make similar arguments from like the sort of broad Freudian perspective about, you know, basically these are about women. These are about men who kill people with their dicks and women who cut off those said dicks. But Um, it's interesting in this film that someone pointed out to me that she doesn't defeat them with his own knife or anything. She doesn't defeat him with any phallic imagery. She, she actually defeats him with very feminine imagery in the way she strokes the box. And I just think it's really interesting. And we all know what box used to be a euphemism for. It's vagina, right? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, horror movies, like, I I have a hard time thinking of one that doesn't deal with sex in it. I mean, I mean, Evil Dead, not really. Well, yeah, but like, Evil Dead 2. I mean, that's He's just him joking around. Like, yeah, that's, that's it's not like a, that's true. None of the stuff that really happens per se. I, I mean, I guess the naked dead body, but like but that's not really like I don't find she, that sexy. But also, I don't find a lot of things sexy. So I don't know. yeah, I I don't know. <laughs> Maybe that's why Evil Dead Two is one of my favorite horror movies. It doesn't go there because I feel like with horror movies it's very easy. Well, maybe not. It depends on how you deal with it. But like sex is something you can just throw in there because people sometimes usually expect that from a horror movie. It's like oh, sex and death and blood. Yeah. So why do you think that is? Do you think it's for the shock value, or do you think um, that it's something about capturing the subconscious? Because I think like that's a big part of horror too. Is that it captures our subconscious, whether that's fears or desires. Um, and I think that's especially true for Hellraiser when we're talking about, like, eldritch-type horrors. Could be a manifestation of the id. Sex and death. It, yeah, it definitely has something to do with the carnal urges. Whether that be to kill or to fuck. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, I uh, I think I said this once as, like, a... a, as like a fake kernel of advice that I think I said that someone else said, but in reality, I just come up with it myself. Um, people typically live in two states of being in movies. They either want to fuck each other or they want to kill each other. You can write really good scripts if you were, if you try to figure out where those things overlap. Um, and Hellraiser is all about that. I mean, I mean, the Venn diagram for that would be a circle. <laughs> right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, then you, you have, like, the final girl trope where the 
the heroine is usually like she's the only one who doesn't want to fuck anyone well that's what i'm saying it's like the virginal character like the kid one character the trope the virgin gets to live Mm -hmm. um which i i mean they never that's really she doesn't actually she doesn't fuck anyone but it doesn't explicitly say like she's never fucked anyone yeah Yeah. she has a boyfriend throughout the do they don't they wake up in bed together at one point or is that there's a part where she wakes up um during a nightmare and um he's like i think he's asleep on her floor okay so So maybe they do point out that is this is the virginal character yeah And I think it interests me because ordinarily that just can be seen as kind of a puritanical message, which is, of course, there's always the contradiction there that like a puritanical message, these this puritanical messaging in movies that are inherently there because you'd like to see people get turned into meat or <laughs> you like to see the fact that people are made of meat made abundantly more obvious. But it interested me to think about uh, subtextually what that might mean in this context because of course Clive Barker very famously is one of the most significant uh, gay voices in horror fiction one of the most significant voices in fiction for a while um, I can think of like a couple others maybe Chuck Palahniuk who's also got kind of horror overtones but not really and uh, the year in which this is made 1987 right uh, yeah. and the fact that this movie about fucked up sex directed by a gay man includes no homosexual activity at all and there were movies, I mean, there was a movie around this time that was a slasher movie set in a gay bar. So I wonder, you know, he, he could have done it. And I mean, if he if he was okay with all of this other really hellaciously violent stuff and what is essentially a document of a very specific, uh, very, you know, mythologized B- early BDSM subculture, then he it's not that I don't think he felt like he was censored on that issue. But I think of it like this, right? In 1980, by 1987, AIDS had happened. And the implication, even after people knew that straight people could get AIDS, was that these these homosexual degenerates are the ones sort of bringing the apocalypse down on themselves. I mean, this was something that was said by actual, like, high-ranking members of the Reagan administration at this point. And I wonder if, whether or not Barker intended to do this, but Barker intends to do a lot of things in Hellraiser, I think. And, of course, horror movies play on the familiar horror of common situations and whatnot. I wonder if Barker is kind of consciously making this choice, and if he's unconsciously making it, I don't care. It's still a choice, um, and it's still something that reflects in, when Are you I watch the movie. Saying that um, nothing is default. Yes. Also, that the author is dead, even though Clive Barker is actually alive, mm-hmm. and in fact, not significantly older than my father. Um, that he sort of pull, he's sort of taking the lens with which you typically see queer characters in genre films like this. There's a very a pretty good but also very offensive uh, William Friedkin movie from 1980 called Cruising, which is about a serial killer at a, in, in sort of the Leatherman subculture in New York in 1980. So it's like both a very important document of that subculture and a like scathingly homophobic condemnation of it. That also happens to have a periphery gay fan base, particularly in Oasis cities. Um, I know that the, that's been screened at gay film festivals in California quite a bit because it's cool and it's William Friedkin. Um but, you know, you have that image portrayed on sort of the the dominant cultural hierarchy. You know, the, the heterosexual couples are responsible for this degeneracy and like the fact that they're equally as capable of it, you know, that if it's sexual degeneracy that brought the apocalypse to gay America, then why the fuck is straight America still a thing? And I think that, you know, maybe that's why the maybe that's why we see the Cenobites as being so morally neutral. I mean... At some level, they're just the arbiters of human behavior. I mean, I imagine they had a bunch of other... If, if, if the Cenobites come from an alternate dimension, 
that implies a lot of alternate dimensions, assuming we take multiverse theory into account. And this is a genre film, I'm going to get technical about this. <laughs> but imagine the Cenobites had a lot of places to choose from. If the universe is vast enough that not only is there life on other planets, but life in other dimensions. If that's the case, then why would the Cenobites choose us? Well, maybe because they knew we'd choose them. Because they don't make anyone do anything. Mm -hmm. They just People drop the seek box. out the box. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm always interested by the line of, it was always yours. Which I don't fully comprehend myself, but also I think it is important to go with it. Like, maybe he spent his whole life and every choice he made leading him to to one extreme to the other. Because I think this movie is arguing on some level, like, against, like, extremes. But I don't know. Maybe not. Because, again, the Cenobites aren't inherently evil. Like, he chooses this. And when he tries to escape it, that's when, that's when they attack. Because he hmm. made this choice to summon them and then abandon them. And they have come back to claim what's theirs. But then you have Christy, who, like, summoned them and didn't even know what was happening. So is she also indebted to them? But then she gets out of it, but then I think they try to take her anyway? And then the house just kind of burns down. So what I'm getting from this movie is that I should commit arson. <laughs> if you're being if you're being attacked by rape demons, then yes. <laughs> yeah. And that is the weird thing, right? Like, I don't know, like, and what year the, the sort of modern, like, definitions of consent came out and became to be widely circulated. I mean, I know that the campus sexual assault thing is a very recent thing, like, as in one presidential administration away recent, um, in terms of that level of education. But I have to imagine that, like, it can't have been that different as a concept in 1987, right? That was only 30 years ago. So it is weird to me that, like, the ways in which the Cenobites view consent, right? That, like, well, if you've got the box... That means that you've given us permission to do anything. But of course, if you stumble into the box by happenstance, which, you know, the charitable opinion is that that's just dramatic contrivance because they have to still be threatening and having them threaten the character that we've now put our sympathies with. And we've realized that all of our other main characters are either horrible or boring, which is another interesting way it plays with conceits of horror movies. Um, that once... You know that, that that they've got to have they've got to have some sort of final chase in a house, a destruction of the artifact. The Cenobites can't just go away because they want to. Almost makes me wonder if that would make a more compelling or at least a more unique film, is to just have the Cenobites be people who will do that because that means that they didn't do anything wrong. It's all the humans, and I mean that's the implication that's made. But of course, they still we still have to have our fun genre stuff, and I'm definitely not opposed to that. The prosthetics in this movie are amazing. Isn't there like again? It's been a little while because so, you guys just watched this, but it's been a while for me. Isn't there like something that pops out? Of, do they do they say like we're gonna take you anyway, Kirsty? Uh, or is she just kind of caught in the crossfire yeah, as they no. take Frank? They um, do chase she, her at she, the end. She was told by them to leave while they were pulling. Uh, Frank apart. So and they are. since she never, she didn't leave until like the last minute, and so I think because she didn't listen to them, they decided they were going to take her anyways. Mm -hmm. Because she was curious. Yeah. They, or at least they thought she was curious. And then Pinhead has this very doting line where he says, 
basically we have so much to show you oh what an incredible the the what an incredible way of like this very unique sexualization that the Cenobites have I mean you see it in a script Barker wrote well a work Barker wrote that became adapted into a film in Candyman where the killer is like this incredibly handsome guy who like he doesn't scream he's not disfigured he like carries a scythe he even has like an elegant weapon with which he tries to kill people and he looks at the girl in one moment who's being threatened by him and he says in this like most seductive of voices be my victim <laughs> and it's an incredibly sexual moment like I mean it's, it's, it's probably it's abundantly clear that every good horror writer has some incredibly messed up sexual proclivities but Barker has made that kind of his like life's work so like in Hellraiser, we see this incredible, like, focus down to the minutiae on the ways in which human sexuality is kind of inherently screwed up. Um, I bet he wrote the Midnight Meat Train. We don't talk about that. <laughs> I'm sorry. We'll I'm have to talk about it. Oh, oh yes. We will talk about it at some point. But oh, I, I, not now. I'm sorry. I just had to ruin all the poetic things you just said. Oh, oh it's fine. I've been saying okay. too much poetic shit. We need to get into, like, the fun genre Bro, stuff. I, I love the poetic shit, though. Dude, yeah. yeah um, like, that's, I feel like... That's a, that's a mm-hmm. film analysis I would read. I feel like eventually we're going to have to, like, start watch. I feel like eventually, if, if this show actually picks up any listeners, what will actually make the show successful is when we start going into, like, the movies that no one else wants to watch oh, and God. the entire audio is just us ranting. But until now, you're stuck with our analytical stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, know, I, 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 can... I know a certain subgenre of people who listen to that shit. I mean, you got to um, make what you want to listen to. So if anyone listening to this doesn't go to film school um, and is interested in what goes on in film school, this will give you a a little bit of an idea of what we do. We watch a lot of movies. We watch a lot of good movies, but we watch a lot of really dumb movies. We will definitely be talking about a lot of very dumb movies because there are a lot of very dumb horror movies on Netflix. I have already watched many of them. I feel like I kind of cheated with this one because... When I was a kid, I found this website called AngryAliens.com, which kind of clued me into which movies were the classics. Uh, they were adaptations of classic films that were reenacted by bunnies in 30 seconds. And they do Hellraiser. That is the most- so I kind of went into Hellraiser expecting something like, what the hell is this? And kind of expecting this unique, weird world and what Pinhead was and what the essential story was, but, like, with actual dialogue. Because the bunnies, in 30 seconds, you can't say much except for, like, we'll tell your soul okay. apart, and then, like, take him! And that's it. That is the most early 2000s thing I have ever heard. I remember that. That one you showed me. That sounds like something from Albino Black Sheep. Like, pre-YouTube, early 2000s internet. But yeah, that's how I heard first heard about the Rocky Horror Picture Show. That's how I first heard about Hellraiser. That's how I first heard about a lot of shit. <laughs> Too much. Um, so back to what you said earlier. Let's get into some of the fun genre crap, too. The effects in this, I know we've already praised up and down, but it's worth saying again. The effects in this are really damn good. Okay. I, I love seeing... So we're watching this in my dorm right now. I'm an RA in a college dorm. And we watched this with some of my residents and seeing their reactions to some of the... When Frank comes back and there's all just the gooey stuff and he pulls his hand up through the floor. And then his progression as he like slowly gains back more and more of like his muscle and his skin. Um, but still really gross. 
seeing seeing the reactions to that was really fun. People were very audibly freaked out. I mean, it is a really freaky thing to watch, but a part of me on the inside was just filled with like this childish glee. This is this is just like yes, this is just like Christmas to me. (laughs) Yeah. So this was my first time watching it, and that part where he comes up out of the floorboards was like so disgusting to me like i love horror and i love gore and stuff but just like watching that it it was so cool but it was so nasty just how their their use of that goopy stuff isn't there like a telltale heart moment where they like go underneath the floorboards and you see his heart like connected yes Yes. the cinematography in this is actually phenomenal i feel like mother stole from hellraiser because of that part well, the technically, horror. they all stole from Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah. He wrote that. Oh, like, well, yeah. Yes, but he wrote I'm that. educated! <laughs> yes. But a, a great deal of horror uh, does. And it's interesting to see that. The birds. Shapeless. Yes. It, it's interesting um, to see that influence here. Both how Hellraiser has been influenced by a lot of other horror movies or writers, you know. What stories, was it? We were just watching like Fright Night. Yeah. Yesterday, and there's like a scene where like the goopy stuff comes back into I think is it's familiar's hand or something and rebuilds it. Oh no, it's was yeah, it it's when where he gets stabbed or, or like the sun hits him. Something happens and his hand like melts and then it comes back and reforms and like I I definitely see something uh, from Hellraiser in that. I don't know which came first. I think Fright Night did probably, but Fright you know, it was in 1985. I think so. And this was in, seven, right? Yeah. In, seven. in general, though, the 80s were a very goopy time. <laughs> I mean, that's a strange oh, yeah. thing to say, maybe, but I think of like there's the Cronenberg Fly, where you get some beautiful goop and beautiful gore, and then gold uh, even down to like gold goop. Gold Gloop. <laughs> Even down to... Oh, now I'm just imagining him turning into the fly and then Oompa Loompa's coming out to no. sing against his flute. Please don't. Um, no. And then down to, like, the back to the beginning of the 80s with Raiders of the Lost Ark and the beautiful face-melting scene. So you were talking a little bit about the cinematography, um, which was one of my favorite parts of rewatching this film. Because, like, the first time I watched it, I was more focused on, like, the gore and the effects and the all the cool shit that's happening. So the second time re-watching it again, it was really interesting to me to see just how masterful, not only the cinematography, but the lighting and some really effective uses of editing, too. We talked about that scene where uh, the mother is having flashbacks of her relationship with Frank while the father is trying to pull the mattress up the stairs right before he cuts his hand. And the way it cuts back and forth between mother and Frank having sex, and then the dad trying to pull this mattress, and he's All like of jerking, the thrusting. yeah, thrusting mm-hmm. back and forth. And I love that because it. And I love that because like, if you ask me what what moment in the film actually caused me and pretty much everybody else in the room we were watching it with to get ooked out the most, because like for all of the other heightened like, for all of the inc- like extreme gore makeup effects and stuff. The thing that actually fucked people up the most was his hand hand grinding across the nail. And I think that, I mean, that boils down to two reasons. One of which is because, well, it's something that could logically happen to you. There's a frame of reference, whereas being turned into a weird Dr. Manhattan-style gore monster, you can kind of imagine that. It's a little bit hard to. But whenever he cuts his hand across the nail, it's like, ah, that would hurt me I so bad. I like waking up. I, I just feel it. Just, okay, I, that, I could feel that. Just the nail coming across his hand. I could feel that on my hand watching it. And 
with all the other stuff, you just, it's hard to imagine what that would feel like just because it's so out of this world. Like, like literally out of this world. They tear you apart because they are beings from a different dimension. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so sorry. The obligatory reference, especially with the. This is why I'm here. No, the obligatory reference for this is. Who are you calling Pinhead? <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I think some of the most the moments that freak me out is yes, the hand thing because that that is a very relatable and visceral feeling. Um, but also, <laughs> come to Daddy. Oh no, God, no. which is interesting because oh, in the book, Christy isn't his daughter. Christy is a friend who has been enamored with him for a very long time, and I think the change of making her into his daughter is actually okay. Are you talking about Larry or Frank? Christy is. Larry's daughter in the movie, but in the book, she is just his friend who has a crush on Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. I thought you were talking about Frank for a second. No. So I haven't read the book either, so. I haven't either, but I've heard a summary. So this is like a game of telephone where I may say some wrong shit, but from what I understand, she's just a friend who, like, really, really likes him. Which, I think the change of making her his daughter makes her character slightly less creepy. Yeah. Because it's not just, like trying to bang the one that got away. It's protecting your family, which is a much more powerful feeling, I believe, and something that everyone can relate to rather than people just asking, why isn't she over him yet? Um, I had a point. Oh, and also there was when the creature chases her down the hall. When I watched the, the cartoon bunny version of the scene, I was scared because I can relate to that fear of just something so much bigger and scarier and unknown chasing me. Like, I can, I can, I'm, I'm terrified of that. Okay, so we're reaching close to our time limit, so is there any last topics you guys want to bring up? Jesus wept. Use protection. Well, can we just talk about that line and, like, the significance of it? Because, like, I just felt like that was such a heavy line. Yeah. And, like, and how Frank was so, like, enamored by Jesus also. Mm-hmm. Like, that was... Oh my god! Well, I, can't I, even, I can't even vocalize how like powerful that line was. And I love how they never really have to explain to you the subtext. Once you know who Frank is, it makes perfect sense why he would be obsessed with Jesus. It's not because of like anything that actually makes people obsessed with Jesus. Usually, it's because Jesus is a guy who is famed for the intensity with which he suffered. Like the the suffering of all of humankind can't rested on his shoulders. And of course. Frank conveniently forgets why Jesus allegedly did that, which was, you know... To, to atone for sin. To, to actually atone for sin. Frank says, yeah, Frank says, you know, well, screw all that religious shit. I just want to, you know, I just want... I want you know, to feel I want like to a be god. That. I want to be that because that pain, you know, you can't, you can't fake that. And so he like, I don't think he looked up to Jesus. I definitely don't think he worshipped Jesus. I think he envied Jesus. Mm-hmm. Which is, ugh. well, I think that like brings up a lot of controversy with the passion of the Christ, mm-hmm. where like people thought it was torture porn, and maybe it wanted to make some people thought the make the audience want to be Jesus, want to like identify so much with him that you're in his shoes, mm-hmm. and uh, no, yeah, of course, and I think it's interesting this idea that like uh, you know this idea of. I think it ties right back in with this idea of the the machinery of the modern, at the time, not necessarily American family, because there's a lot of English people there, too. 
but the the sort of machinery of the modern family and all of the cultural landmarks going back thousands of years on which it's based are all just various ways of expressing the fact that we deep down want to hurt each other. And that kind of misanthropy is not something I agree with. And I don't necessarily know if it's something that Clive Barker agrees with either. I will say that basing an entire story off of it can be pretty friggin' compelling. And I think, well, that depends. Like, you have characters like Christy, who I think wants to hurt Frank because he hurt her family. And then you have Larry, who just... He's just kind of there. He's just kind of there. They just mm. use him. Like, he's just... He's a vanilla guy that they use mm-hmm. until he is without skin. And then you have Christie's boyfriend, who is essentially that, but he has no relevance to the plot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's just there. He's just there. These boring vanilla men, they're just there. And they either die or they're not relevant Which means to the, plot. the only anyway. real cool male characters are Frank and Pinhead is never actually explicitly declared to have a gender, so not Pinhead. Well, Frank. It's, uh, the, the only male character in in the whole movie that has like any real character is Frank which is weird to me because usually you know you have like a shit ton of male characters who are complex and stuff but then you have like two or three female characters who do nothing but in this movie it's kind of flipped it's two to one with the like complexity of the character with Kirstie and I think Julia was her name? I think that's right yeah that sounds right and they, they're the more complex characters, and then you have Frank, and then, like, any other character is, like, you know, either a plot device or just there, and just because. I, I do love that they give the villains some moments of humanity, when, or, like, when they're trying to regain it, like, when Julia can't bring herself to let Larry get killed, or when Frank doesn't want her to look at him when he does the murder. I just think those are very interesting moments that make them more than just typical antagonists. Because, like, I never have had a moment where I really feel bad for Freddy or Jason. Yeah. They're just kind of, oh no. Oh no. Here they come. So, that concludes our first episode. I think Hannah and I are going to tackle the Midnight Meat Train next. You don't want to watch that movie. I wouldn't recommend it to anyone. uh, All I know is Ted Raimi is in it, and that will be the only reason. Just watch the scene with Ted Raimi and don't watch anything else of it. It's uh, that's a story written by Clive Barker, also. So I don't think he had anything to do with the movie, though. I hope not. So uh, it sounds like we're going to be taking a sabbatical from the uh, intellectual uh, theoretical perspective. To just rant and rave about something shitty. Which I imagine means that this next episode is going to be a lot more popular. Yeah, probably. Probably, but that's okay. One more thing I'm going to try, and we'll see if this sticks around in future episodes or not, is a quick, would you recommend this or not? And or who would you recommend it for? Well, I, I liked it a lot, just because it was very... It's different from other horror movies, just in the way that it's shot and the stories told. I would say I, I would recommend it to people who, of course, are, like, really into gore and stuff, but I also recommend it to people who, like, just feel... It's a it's a weird way to, to word this, but, like, people who want to, like, explore a different side of themselves, which, I mean, that's really what the movie's all about, but, like... <laughs> Just, just take a look at it and like it's it's a 
good way to look at yourself in a different way, I guess, because this movie does a lot of reflection on the inner workings of people. I definitely recommend this movie. I mean, I I already show it to a lot of my friends who, who say they love horror films and love just film in general, because even if it is a genre piece, I think the way it is shot is very competent and effective and creative. And the story itself is takes time to um, delve into characters that you normally don't get to see that side of them. And I love that the villain is more ambiguous than anything else. Usually in a horror movie, it's just bad guy, good guy, kill the bad guy. But this is much different. And I, I enjoy that ambiguity and I enjoy the style of which they present it. I mean, this movie's already part of the canon, so I guess it's establishment as, you know, if you are part of this set, which if you're listening to this podcast, you probably are, I, I would recommend it without question. The more interesting question for me would be, when do you see it? Which was interesting for us, because of course we started this sort of flagship with, with a film that's part of like an established canon, right? Which is interesting. It'll be fun to see where that, where that, where that leads us later when we're watching, I don't know. I've never, I've never, I've never went through the depths of Netflix, so I don't really know what else to expect. But I wouldn't watch this as your, I wouldn't watch this as your, uh, as your first foray into '80s horror. Um, I would watch, honestly, I would, I would knock out a couple, couple of the more traditional slashers. Watch the first Friday the Thirteenth as one of your first, if only because it's so simplistic. That I would, kind of I would say watch it. part one and part two of the Friday the Thirteenth movies because part two is really when it gets popular. I feel like the same way with the Evil Dead movies. You have to watch the first and the second one in order to see why it was so popular. Um, affiliate yourself with you know, sort of a baseline of what more traditional horror structure is and then watch Hellraiser. And with that context, that's I think the best context to watch it in. Because like you, like this can't be... I don't, I don't know if... We already had sort of a background of this scene, this particular sort of collective oeuvre of you know, 1980s horror. We knew what we knew what the expectations were at the time. We knew how a movie like Hellraiser subverts them, and I think that's the best mode to be in. That sort of allows you to sort of see how significant Hellraiser is, and also to just if you're already in that mood, then it'll kind of you know you can you can you can enjoy all the really fun uh, genre stuff, which we didn't talk about, but it's Hellraiser. This has been written about. I feel like Fangoria writes about this yearly. We decided to take a different tact with it. Yeah, I would also add that in a maybe not as an eloquent way, that I would definitely recommend this, especially if you like gore and special effects, but also if you just want to show people some shit that might freak them out. <laughs> <laughs> maybe some of your friends haven't seen this. I mean, and it it's definitely freaked me out a little bit. Is there anywhere online where we can find you guys? Any websites that you want to promote? You could find me on Twitter, I guess, but uh, you're going to have to do some hunting. Let's <laughs> okay. just put it at that. We'll leave it at that. Scavenger hunt time. Yep, I'll be on uh, Pornhub.com. <laughs> no! no! Oh, we almost, we got oh, so close gosh. to getting through this without Hold stuff. on, we didn't finish the URL. It might have something we don't expect. <laughs> Pornhub.com slash uh, pinhead69. No! no. <laughs> I take it back. That's probably... I mean, uh, it's an appropriate joke, the, but also... No! Hellraiser can be found on Netflix, obviously. So if you haven't seen that, go check it out too. Go forth.